As uh, I was walking up here, Zach just challenged me to follow that, and I'm not sure that I can. Um, anyway, here at Redemption over the last couple of weeks, we've been moving through uh, what we call the Redemption One-Liner, and it's just a statement that tries to, um, I, I think, point us in the right direction and sort of um, defines who we want to become as a people here at Redemption. And so uh, we're going to be looking at the last part of that statement here this morning in just a second. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Um, God, thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here this morning together and to uh, already worship and sing and um, celebrate together. God, I just pray over the next few minutes as we sort of dive into this one-liner and, and look at some places in Scripture that help to clarify what that's about and why we say this about ourselves, why we say that this is who we want to be as a people. God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds. Um, I pray through it all, Jesus would be glorified. There would be great joy here. God, I pray that Christ would be lifted high in this place um, and that you would be honored and glorified. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Here is um, that statement that I just referenced, what we at Redemption call our one-liner, and it's this, because we know that Jesus has often been misrepresented, we're striving to make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, loving the way he loves, serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody into the family of God. Last week, Ben talked specifically uh, about the concept of being honest about our failures and why that matters when we're striving to make the real Jesus known. Uh, and this morning, I'm going to dive into the last part of that one-liner that defines, like I said, the one-liner that defines who we are striving to become here at Redemption, the last part that talks about loving and serving and inviting everyone into the family of God. And we'll get to that shortly. Um, but 20 years ago, I was in seminary, uh, I was working as a youth pastor on the south side of town here in Augusta, and another local youth pastor who was in seminary with me, um, and who was serving on the south side of town as well, started talking and dreaming and praying about planting a church here in Augusta. For a whole year, we'd get together once a week on Wednesday afternoons uh, before we went to our Wednesday night prayer meetings at the different churches where we were serving, and we'd pray together about starting a church. And we eventually did. My wife Amy and I and Wes and Sarah and a handful of other people uh, planted, somehow started what is now Redemption Church. And I don't really remember the exact content of those early prayers, but I know that they were earnest and sincere and contained a desire to see um, the people of Augusta come to know Jesus in a very real way, in an impactful way. At the same time, my expectations for what was going to happen when we planted this church, what I actually wanted to see happen, might not have focused around those specific things. I expected Redemption Church, or at the time we were known as The Well, I expected the well to grow really big, really fast. I expected lots of people to show up. I expected to have lots of influence and lots of resources and the ability to do whatever we thought was cool 
and needed in the city of Augusta. None of those things are necessarily bad, right? There's nothing wrong with having um, lots of resources or a large church with a bunch of people attending or tremendous influence in the city or whatever it might be. But what I've come to understand over time is that there's something better than those things. And I think that this one-liner encapsulates that better way and those better things. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 has really informed my thinking about the purpose of a church. I think that could be said true of, of Ben as well. But in these verses, you see the concept uh, of, a diff- of a few different things. But what you see in these verses is that uh, Jesus saves his people. He calls them out of darkness. He makes them into a family. He makes them into a people. He brings individuals who are not formally related together and relates them into a new way. And then he gives them a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and his victory. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 reads this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ben wrote that one-liner a few years back after spending many years thinking about the vision and mission and purpose of Redemption Church and who we wanted to be as a church and as a people. And I think this one-liner appropriately directs us in the same direction that these verses from 1 Peter do, right? To be about making the real Jesus known and proclaiming Christ and his victory. And this one-liner gives us some practical ways to actually make that happen. To be honest about our failures, to love and to serve and to invite others into the family of God. And so what I want to do this morning is just sort of spend a few minutes reflecting on the ideas of loving the way that Jesus loves, serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody into the family of God. Um, Normally, when I preach, what I like to do personally, it's just a personal preference, is to focus on one set of uh, verses and sort of just deal with that one passage or that one set of verses. But today, um, as I sort of just reflect on these things There'll be a lot of different places in Scripture that we look at, um, but I think that these places where we're going to go have greatly impacted me in the way that I understand what this statement is calling us to as a church. And so I just want to talk through those things. Uh, So first, loving the way he loves. Back in the summer of 2019, when Ben was on sabbatical, we as a church worked through 1 John, preached through the book of 1 John, and several members of our church actually preached a few sermons on 1 John. Uh, I preached some that summer as well. We had some guests come in and preach, but personally, working through 1 John, seeing those members of our church work through 1 John, preaching through it myself, is one of the highlights of uh, of the past 20 years of my time with this church and my involvement with this church. It was amazing, I thought, to see God at work in a variety of different ways, calling us to maturity as a church and calling us to love one another. 
One of the reasons that I love 1 John so much, and stay with me as I draw this out, but one of the reasons why I love the book of 1 John so much and greatly valued that experience that summer um, was that in the church tradition that I came up in and in the uh, seminary where I was trained and, and much of my um, time coming up through Bible college and, and all those things, um, I was led to spend a lot of time thinking about theology. A lot of time thinking about theology. And the danger in spending so much effort and time on building a house around theology alone is that you begin to define your faith by what you believe rather than by who is truly the center of your faith. And I've seen the fruit of a Christianity that is defined more by a focus on correct doctrine than it is on Jesus. I've seen the fruit of a Christianity that's defined by a focus on correct doctrine more than it is on Christ and being Christ-like. And the fruit of that type of Christianity is often rotten and ugly. I'm not saying that correct doctrine isn't important, but I am saying that correct doctrine is not the center of our faith. It may help to define our faith, it may help us to understand more about God and Scripture and how to relate to God and to the world, but it is not the center of our faith. Christ is the center of our faith. Becoming like Christ is more important than aligning ourselves with a theological camp that we happen to think is the most correct or that has it all together. And I think the book of 1 John appropriately calls the church to a life of maturity around Christ and being Christ-like. 1 John 3, 16 through 8 reads this way. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love can best be defined by God's initiative to lay down his life for his people, for us. The cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the redemption of God that comes by these things, this is what defines love most appropriately. There's much in our world that would define love in other ways, but those definitions fall far short. They are often subpar. The epicenter of love is God's willingness to offer himself on our behalf. The willingness of Jesus to lay down his life on our behalf. A, a sacrifice that would atone for sin and give us victory over our greatest enemies and make us into God's people and put us on mission for Christ. Right? What I'm saying is that our definition of love must be nothing less than the cross of Jesus and what he did. You and I, we've been called to a life of love, but a life of love that forms itself to the shape of the cross. I, I wish I could say that even this past week in my own life, that everything I did and everything I said was an expression of Christ-like love, but it wasn't. And yet Jesus has called us to love 
as he has loved us. Right, and brothers and sisters, this calling should make us uncomfortable. I know it does for me. But even in that uncomfortable place, constantly reminded that Jesus has loved me and has provided all the grace and mercy I need so that I can love others. Right, Christ has put me in this family. He's put us together in this family where together we can become a community that loves like Jesus loves. A community of faith that loves one another and others and our city the way that Jesus loves us. I started off this idea of this statement, loving the way that he loves, this part of the one-liner, uh, by focusing on the idea that oftentimes we define our faith by our doctrine rather than by being Christ-like. And I know that was true for me at one point in time. Right? But you can't come to a place of maturity in the Christian life. You can't take the words of 1 John seriously and stay in that mindset. You know, the book of 1 John was written to a community of faith dealing with all kinds of stuff and trouble in some ways. And part of what John does in that book is call this church to a place of maturity and calls this church to a place of loving one another to rise above those things they were dealing with. And what I want us to take away from this idea of this call in the one-liner to love like Jesus loves, what I want us to, to grasp is that there is a correlation between love and maturity. We need to grasp that maturity produces greater love, not just greater knowledge, not just better articulations of doctrine. The true test of Christ-likeness, the true test of abiding in God, the true test of abiding in Jesus is the demonstration of love as we become more Christ-like. It's the willingness and ability to offer grace and mercy. That's the kind of people we need to be. Not people who are good at talking like Jesus or people who are good at talking about Jesus, but people who are actually like Jesus, who live a life of Christ, of cross-shaped love. We may not be there yet as individuals, as a family, as a community of faith, we may not be there yet, but we can be a people who are moving in that direction. This statement, this one-liner that we talk about, we want it to define who we are. That doesn't necessarily mean that is who we are, but it does mean that we can move in that direction. It does mean that we can become the kind of people who love like Jesus loves, recognizing that that's what Jesus has done for us, recognizing that we can do this as Christ enables us to do this and empowers us to do this. That's who we want to be as a people, as a church, as a community of faith, a people who loves like Jesus loves. The second thing in this statement, at the end of this statement, is serving the city for the good of all. Serving the city for the good of all. Loving the way he loves, serving the city for the good of all. Uh, back when we were first starting what is now Redemption Church, there was a passage from Jeremiah 29 that really informed my thinking about how we as a church should exist in the city where God has placed us, in the city where we exist. 
In Jeremiah 29, at the beginning of Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah has sent a letter to the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon in captivity. And it's a wide-ranging letter, ultimately promising God's redemption for them. Even though they've now been sent into exile because of their idolatry and injustice. And the letter starts off with this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I, I find that passage to be particularly striking. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now I recognize that this letter that Jeremiah sent was to a specific people at a specific point in history, and it's part of the narrative of um, the narrative story of God's redemptive purposes and God's redemptive action. It's not a direct command to the New Testament church, but there is something here that is really appealing, and there's something here that's really good. In a few weeks, we'll be diving into the book of Ecclesiastes. Ben mentioned that last week, I think, and we'll, talk, we'll be talking about how God has put eternity in, into our hearts, but that he's created us for the here and now. In Jeremiah 29, when Jeremiah sends this letter, he says, this is where you find yourselves in the here and now. May not be where you want to be, but in the here and now, seek the welfare of the place where you are. Pursue the welfare of the city where you are. When God's people find themselves in exile in a place that's not their home, a place they don't want to be, God says to them, flourish there, serve there, serve there, seek the good of the city where you are. You know, the book of Revelation talks about a city as well. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, reads like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, the whole story of God's redemptive work throughout history and throughout scripture, leads to a new city. A city where God is dwelling with his people and all things are as they're supposed to be. 
right? This passage, if you go on and read through it, it talks about all kinds of things. But in this new city where God will dwell with his people, the thirsty will freely drink from the springs of the water of life. There will be no more cowardly acts, no faithlessness, nothing detestable or unholy, no murder or sexual immorality or idolatry or injustice, no lies. All that stuff will be gone and dealt with. It will be a city that is made up of one big family, a good and loving family that doesn't hurt one another, but instead edifies one another and values one another rightly. It's a beautiful picture of where God's redemption is taking his people. And I hope that we can almost see it. But I can also see that the city we live in now, no matter how much we love it, doesn't look like that place of peace and justice and wholeness. And what this one-liner does, though, it calls us to be a people who are unwilling to just sit back and wait for the realization of that new city. It calls us to be a people who are so ready for that future city, so familiar with it, so hungry for it, so looking forward to what will be, that we are able to immediately recognize how our present city and culture doesn't look like that future reality, but also be able to see that our purpose here is to work toward making that future reality a present reality in the city where God has placed us. It calls us to be intensely aware of how those things um, stand between God and the people all around us, leaving our city separated from God and His wholeness and His salvation. Right? This one-liner calls us to be a people actively waiting and preparing for that day by running to fill the gaps in our city now bringing the gospel to bear in word and in deed by serving the city for the good of all. At Redemption Church, it's our desire to run to the city where God has placed us here and now, to saturate the city with the good news of Jesus and how we love others and in how we serve others so that our city can be transformed into a mini prototype of that city to come. That's a big vision. It's a big idea. I get it. It can maybe even seem unattainable. Nonetheless, we want to become a people who are serving the city for the good of all. Finally, the third thing in this statement, loving the way he loves, serving the city for the good of all, inviting everyone into the family of God. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read this story about Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Literally, God comes to Abraham, tells him to get up and move to a new place. And if he does, if he's faithful, God will make him into a great nation. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through his family. That promise is repeated in Genesis 15. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And even though I don't have the time to fully draw this out all the way through Scripture this morning, what I do want to say is that this right here, these verses in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, this was the beginning of God's great project to build a family and a people for himself. And we see that project move forward throughout the biblical story, right? Through Abraham and his family, God was going to deal with everything that had gone wrong in the Garden of Eden. God was going to redeem all of creation. God was going to set aside a family for himself, a people for himself. And we find the ultimate fulfillment of that in Jesus. But through it all, this is the start, right? This is the place in Scripture where we can go and see that God is building this family, for himself. We read about that at the beginning uh, today when we first started talking. We read from 1 Peter, right? This, this, this thing where God is making a people for himself in order to proclaim the excellencies of God. If you will indulge me just for a moment, N.T. Wright describes the beginning of this effort of family building as like the formation of a river. Rivers start small, a tiny spring in the mountains, a distant lake, a melting glacier, all of them, right? And a thousand more things contributing to the formation of a river. When it comes to the church, Wright says this, the church is like a river. In the last book of the Bible, John the visionary sees a huge throng of people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue coming together in a great chorus of praise. Like the river, they all started in different places, but they have now brought their different streams into a single flow. The image of the river reminds us forcibly that though the church consists by definition of people from the widest possible variety of backgrounds, part of the point of it all is that they belong to one another and are meant to be a part of the same powerful flow going now in the same single direction such that diversity gives way to unity. I think I'm right in saying that it's often difficult to grasp the sense of corporate Christian identity, that we belong to one another, primarily because we are immersed in the uh, individualism of Western society. The idea of belonging to one another, to this large and sometimes messed up family, it's kind of scary and intimidating. But it's always been true of God's family, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we don't exist primarily. That we don't exist primarily to provide a place where people can pursue their private spiritual agendas or develop their own spiritual potential. It's bigger than that. The church is not intended to be a safe haven in which people can hide from the wicked world while they're waiting to get to heaven. Private spiritual growth and ultimate salvation, they're the byproducts of the main purpose for which God has called and is calling us to. 
This purpose is stated throughout the New Testament. God's church will announce to the world that through Jesus, he has defeated the powers that corrupt and enslave the world. And that by his spirit, he is at work to renew and redeem it. The church exists primarily to announce to the world that Jesus is Lord and that God is inviting everyone into his family because Jesus is Lord. For us, God has already invited us in and he's done so so that we will proclaim his excellencies to the world so that others will be invited in as well. Literally, the existence of the church is to proclaim in word and in deed the greatness of God and to invite others in to what God has done and is doing. There's nothing more important we can give the world than Jesus. Right? We love simply because Jesus loved us. We serve simply because Jesus sacrificed for us. We invite others in because Jesus has invited us in. And because that's what God is about, inviting people into his family. We don't do these things to trick people, to manipulate them, to try and control them. We are called to do these things because Jesus did them for us. And that's who we're called to be as a people. And I've seen that begin to happen at this church over the last few years. There's, there's, there's no doubt that within this church, this church is a family and it's becoming a family. You see it all the time, the way that we love one another. I, I hear all the time about in different missional communities, people um, loving one another, providing meals, all kinds of different ways of caring for one another. It, it's happening in the life of the church in the way that we care for one another. We see it beginning to happen in the way that we love our community. I think there is truth in the fact that our city and especially the downtown neighborhood where God has placed us, there's a reality that our city recognizes that redemption loves this city and wants to see this city prosper. There's the reality of redemption. I've seen us serve the community in different ways by uh, showing up to help at Iron Man by showing up for other big events that we deal with uh, that happen right out here on our streets. Right? I, I, I've seen the people of Redemption Church serve one another on Sunday mornings. We volunteer, do all kinds of things. We've seen Redemption Church inviting others into the family of God by loving the city, by serving the city, by showing up and saying, there's a place for you in God's family. There's a place for you in this family where we can love you, where we want to love you and care for you the way that God's family is supposed to do so. So the call for us this morning is, is simply this, to move in the direction of maturity as it relates to loving, serving, and inviting others into the family of God. To continue to grow and mature, to continue to be like Jesus. We don't have to do it all at once. We're probably not going to do it all at once. But there is a call to be moving in that direction, right? And so what I would encourage you to do this morning is just simply ask yourself, God, as it relates to 
uh, being honest about our failures. What, what we say in this statement is we want to make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, loving the way he loves, serving the city for the good of all, inviting everyone into the family of God. And these things that we're going to do to make Jesus known, God, where is it right now that maybe I'm lacking some maturity? God, where in those statements right now it, do I need to grow and mature in some way? And I would ask you maybe to just, to just focus in on that one thing for now. It may not be true that we can do all of these things at once, but we can do one of them and we can begin, you, begin to do more and more and more. So I'd invite you to identify one area maybe where God is calling um, you to focus on that thing and, and, and to take some time to love or serve or invite or simply be honest about where we failed, whether in those areas or somewhere else. I would ask you to just take a moment and focus in on those things, see what God would say to you, and see what God would have you do as a result of recognizing that there is this call on our life to love and serve and invite others into the family of God. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday at Redemption. Um, this time of response is where uh, different things happen. The band will come up and lead us again in a moment. We have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back. Uh, just most of us give in other ways, but it's a time for us to remember that our giving is a result of the fact that God has provided for us, and we're simply responding in worship as we give. Uh, and there's an opportunity for us to take communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption. Um, in order to remember what Christ has done and proclaim to one another that we believe it. It's a visible um, thing that we can do together as a family to say uh, the gospel is true, Jesus has acted on our behalf, and we're proclaiming that we believe it even as we come and take the bread and dip it in the wine or juice and, and remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and we'll continue on in that time of response. God, thank you for uh, this reminder from different places in your word, how you've called us to love like you've loved us, how you've called us to serve, sacrifice like you've sacrificed for us. God, how you're about the business, building your family. You've called us to proclaim your glory that others might be invited into the family as well. God, I pray that you would make this true of us as a church and as a people. God, that we would love that way, that we would serve that way, that we would invite others into your family in that same way. Because of Jesus, because of what Christ has done for us. God, as we close our time together over the next few minutes, I pray that um, Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place and we would be drawn to you because of Christ. God, we thank you for Jesus, for what he's done to win such a great victory, to redeem us, to set in place the restoration and the redemption of this world. God, may we celebrate that even now, what Christ has done, how amazing it is. God, we thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for our great Savior. Amen.